the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Thrill of the Hill podcast series as part of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service. You're here with Alec Perry and this afternoon I'm joined by Robert Ramsey. Hello everyone. So um, Robert, how have you been finding lockdown? Yeah, it'd be wrong to say it's not been a challenge. You know, if we're now all working from home and uh, probably finding out that we can in fact work from home. So it's been a uh, quite an interesting transition into that. But there's there's a lot happening out there. There's a lot going on for the beef industry and uh, the livestock sector. So there's plenty for us to get our teeth into. And uh, with probably I can count myself very lucky that I've got a job that I can do throughout lockdown and acutely aware that there's many others who've not been able to do their job. So yeah, I count myself very lucky. Good, good. My impression is that a lot of farmers are just getting on with it. Um, you know, the, the, the option's not there to, to take a break or to, to stop activity. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, no, we're really lucky again. So I'm farming at home as well, and, it, and it's great that we can... You know, we're self-isolating at home at our work. You know, we've got everything really, we really are so lucky. And I think it's important that we all, everyone who is farming takes a step back and realises, you know, things things might not be going to plan at home. They might not be, you might not be having a great day, but you're still having a better day than that person sitting in their one bedroom flat, not able to yeah. get out of the house. And, um, you know, we're, we're in a really fortunate position. And we're also in a fortunate position that for a wee minute there, um, food security became an issue. Um, food was important top of the agenda so uh, we got a kind of almost a sense of purpose again and uh, the industry actually is going fairly well you know it's things are working away all right the coronavirus element is a it's a hassle it's a problem but it's not a having the detrimental impact on our financial situation the same way as it is on tourism and hospitality sectors anyway for for those listening, Robert, do you want to just outline what it is you do as a beef and sheep specialist? Yeah, so I am a, a beef consultant, so I work a, in SEC's livestock team. So basically, I suppose I do a, a range of different different things. I um, do a lot to do with farm advisory service, things like this, and generally trying to, I suppose, push, push the beef, beef industry forward. And at the moment, with carbon and climate change being so high on the agenda, uh, a lot of what we're doing, at, doing is actually looking at efficiency and how we can push businesses to be less or to have less of an impact on the, uh, the environment. And the good thing with that is it's actually by being more efficient that way, we can actually make a bit more money too. So that's where my real, I suppose, interest is with kind of farm business management and financial work as well. So mm-hmm. they do quite a lot of, kind of cash flow type work and, and things alongside the, the carbon stuff and the efficiency stuff. Basically, we provide a, a range of technical services and, and support local offices as well. So that's it's a, it's a very mixed job and I consider myself very lucky to do the job I do. And and you kind of service clients nationally now, or, or are, are you more locally to the, the southwest? Yeah, so I am born and brought up in the southwest, and and cut my teeth as a general consultant in the southwest. Certainly, my job is it's a national job, and it's a really exciting national job. So you get your teeth into things, different issues across the country, and it's also good though. You know, as I say, a hey, are born and bred. It's good to still have that local contact and. 
you know, deal with the local offices as well and, and, and keep my finger in the pulse more locally as well. We had uh, we had Daniel Stout on earlier, um, kind of doing the, the counterpart to, to what we're hoping to discuss here this afternoon. He was talking about um, sheep upland grazing strategies and how to, to create synergy between your farmed upland um, and your in-by improved grassland. Is that very much something that you would endorse, Robert? A synergy is a really good word, doesn't it? That's a yeah, yeah. nice word for today. But yeah, it's, I think it's really important. The hill area of all farms is probably the it's the engine room, isn't it? It's the or on, on many hill farms, you know, it's what what you do up there that should be driving what's happening further down on the farm too. So how can you make the two complement each other? Uh, obviously, the hill will be a, a cheaper place to winter stock and, and, and carry lower value stock, while then buy would be the place that you can you know, push things forward and, and maximise the value and what you're selling as well. So it's, yeah, definitely a synergy. I'm going to stick with that word. It's an excellent word. To, to, to what extent, Robert, do you think that there's, there's a perception over the last couple of years that there's this retreat from the hills in Scotland uh, to what extent do you think that that's accurate? Uh, and if yeah. it is accurate, do you, what would what would you suggest that we we do to to reverse it? Yeah, it's interesting because it, it definitely is happening. There's there's certainly there's a lot of unstocked hills out there. There's and and for various reasons, you know, maybe it's a succession planning. Often it's financial and 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 it's we have to admit it is very much it's a challenge to make the figures stack up in these areas and, and in many cases you can be better off by actually claiming the subsidy and getting rid of the stock and that to me that's a real totally understand why people have done that but it's so detrimental to what our country is to what we're all about and and it's you know it's a sad result almost of a, a subsidy system that maybe wasn't really particularly well designed to encourage stock to remain in hills and actually with the stock come the jobs as well so you lose stock from an area you you risk the losing the key people in the community and, and getting more a uh, tourism coming in and things and actually the heart of the community isn't there so it's a real a real shame but i think the other bit that we have to think about as well is it's not just a retreat from the hills there's a lot of low ground farms as well that aren't as heavily stocked as they used to be and and probably less productive with that in mind and, and it's we have to keep in mind that the heaviest stocked farm isn't the most productive farm you know it's there's a sweet spot in the middle somewhere but i think in, in many cases across the board we're, we're below that and we, we risk losing that critical mass that's going to keep markets and uh, slaughterhouses and and really keep what drives the industry keep those service industries going so it's a, it's a real challenge and and how we how we deal with that i i'm unsure but it's certainly there's a a a tendency anyway for, for uh, stock numbers to reduce in, uh, across all areas of, of the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned the, the industry broadly there, Robert. What, what is the overview? What, what, what are things looking like right now? It's interesting. Last year, certainly from in the beef sector, the beef came through a very difficult time last year and, and prices were probably as poor as they've been in, in living memory, you know, relative to input costs and things. It was a real tough time for about 18 months. And then it was beginning to rally at the start of the year. Um, it was it was heading in the right direction. And then coronavirus hit and crashed the price again briefly. 
But <laughs> from that, that was just a, basically the shock. But from there, we then saw a period of panic buying and demand for low-value cuts of beef rocketed. So that, that drove the price up and particularly drove the price of cull cows up, which are at pretty much record levels at the moment. That's just obviously showing the demand for really just for mince, I suppose. A lot of these cull cows will just be going for mince to make uh, burgers and, and, and processing beef. So interesting that, that, that obviously that happened. The market was disrupted and with any disruption comes change. So uh, from there, the, the beef markets actually rallied very well and we're actually we're up, up the length of kind of 380 390 a kilo dead weight and that's you know we're into the realms of where people are actually finishers are making reasonable money they're looking to buy store cattle they're actively looking for cattle mm-hmm. and having to pay money to get them because there's a lot of competition for them so as an industry you know it, it's obviously we would all hope that the coronavirus issue gets dealt with you know quickly and, and uh, efficiently but the Certainly, that that shock definitely benefited our sector. Um, yeah. Which I don't. Again, I don't think we should shout that from the rooftops because it's a very contentious subject. But it was probably the one thing that that gave the market a bit of a kick. And now there's good demand for beef. There's now um, people at home probably with a bit more money in their pocket at the moment who are probably or who are now buying a higher value cuts of beef. The weather in the last few weeks hasn't been great, but Prior to that, there was a lot of barbecues on the go, uh, and that certainly drove the price. So that's there's been a lot of a lot of positives in a in a very negative setting. There's been quite a lot of positives for the red meat sector this year. In terms of of, of Brexit um, and the recent ag bill that that's been you know very widely discussed, are those factors that are playing into the market right now, or is is that impact still to come down the line? Do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the market's got too many other things to deal with at the moment that Brexit almost is, and we know it's coming, but it's almost hard to believe that it's coming. We've spoken about it for so long, um, but certainly it's on the horizon and there's no doubt a, the big retailers and things must be looking at the at Brexit and, and the potential implications of that. As it stands, we still don't really know what's going to happen, you know, and it's quite scary that we're, we're looking like, you know, potentially a hard Brexit, which from a beef perspective might be, or, or could be quite positive, um, depending on what the world trade situation is going to be. Uh, yep. But bearing in mind that most beef farmers also have sheep, uh, you know, a hard Brexit, it's a, um, it could be a slight positive on one side and a real negative on the other. So uh, I don't know. It's For me to say what's going to happen with Brexit, would I would be one wrong and two probably a liar as well. So um, I think it's interesting. The, the Ag Bill, definitely where we're going in future. So we're, we've been tied tied down to the common agricultural policy and, and also seen all the benefits of... EU member states that have got more of an agricultural lobby than us. So Ireland and France would be examples of people who probably have their their general public are more agricultural and are more inclined to support in farming. So we're now going to be out on our own, which in many ways is good. But from a support point of view, you know, we're, we're really at the mercy of what our governments are going to 
uh, going to come up with as, as far as a, a method of support. Um, that said, who knows what the budgets are likely to be? You know, the economic situation at the moment is a real, uh, hugely uncertain, um, or the, the only certainty is that it's not going to be very good. So how mm-hmm. much money is going to come to agriculture is going to be very interesting. And I think we do need to start really selling the good points of our industry. We've, we've seen all the negatives, we've heard all the negatives in the media uh, pre-coronavirus, and that was, I have to say, that was another uh, benefit of the, the BBC having something else to talk about, which, um, you know, the beef bashing was pretty constant up till uh, the, the turn of the year. And then as things developed, we've almost got a stay of execution at the moment. And I think we need to... As you know, as a part all, all, across the whole industry, we need to start shouting about the good stuff rather than complaining or complaining about people talking about the bad stuff. Um, so I think we've got a, an opportunity there to to almost reset the narrative and and start talking about all the good stuff. And from a hill point of view, so that's the what we're talking about today: biodiversity, conservation, all these things basically are the the landscape we know today is driven by ruminant agriculture you could argue the tourism industry everything that makes us scottish is driven by hill ewes hill cows and we need to actually start shouting about that good good what what is it robert about beef cattle in in particular that are beneficial to the uplands um whether that's kind of on their own or you mentioned, obviously, a, a lot of beef farmers will have their own flock as well. What is it about beef cattle that, whether on their own or in conjunction with sheep, make them ideal for the uplands? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the, the first thing we've got to say is what else can the uplands do for us as far as food yep. production goes? And the answer is not, not very much. You know, true hill ground, we can't improve it. We're not allowed to improve it anyway, but it's, it's not improvable to a point that we can produce crops for humans so what else are we going to do with it it's poor low value forage and you need something to convert low value forage into a higher value product so cows i suppose their big benefit is they're not actually that good at grazing so their sheep are very selective they've got a small mouth and can be very targeted and graze out different you know different species within the sward and leave other things behind them whereas a cow has a much obviously a much bigger mouth uh, and is less capable of actually targeting those wee tasty species that are in there they've got to eat everything so basically a cow will give you a, a good rough graze across a, a lot of the hill they'll, they'll eat down into the sward but not eat at all and then they'll move on so they're grazing roughly leaving some dung behind them as, as fertilizer doing a little poaching opening up the sward a bit to encourage new species in and moving on whereas sheep are probably more inclined to be more intensive grazers. Uh, they'll probably target key areas of the hill and graze them harder. Um, but as you said, it's all about a, you know, a bit of balance. All cows in the hill wouldn't be, a, I wouldn't have said in, in most cases, wouldn't be the, the best way forward. A mix of the two would be, from a, certainly from a conservation point of view, would be the, the, the best in many cases. I'm not a conservation specialist. I am interested in making sure we're not having a detrimental impact on hills and, and certainly interested in, in pushing the good news stories. And, and to me, the 
conservation end of things is a very good news story. And at the same time, we can also produce some very good quality beef. Where we need to go, I think anyway, as an industry, if ag bill and global trade becomes a thing equally as a microbial protein becomes a thing, so manufactured meat mm-hmm. develops and, and comes online, we need to start telling stories. We need to start start adding value to our product and try and get away from producing commodities. And to me, that hill, you know, the, the photograph of the extensively grazed hairy cow out, out there on a hill somewhere is, is an easy sell, really. So I, I do think, um, you know, po- policymakers have, to a certain degree, recognised the, the value of cattle, whether that's on the uplands or in, in your, your, your smaller kind of croft and small farm units across Scotland. I mean, we've seen within the Agri-Environment Climate Scheme funding available specifically for for summer upland hill grazing with cattle, native breed cattle um, on small units across Scotland. So I think Scottish Government do recognise the the value of of cattle and and keeping them in Scotland. Yeah, I think if we're always talking about public goods and talking about, you know, all of the policy stuff that we're hearing is about moving money up the hill yep um you know encouraging a habitat development and, and all that i suppose the agri-environment climate scheme is a prime example isn't it of of trying to get money into conservation and a uh, farming in a kind of sensitive manner and that all plays into the hands of hill cows and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's really quite quite exciting as long as the biggest thing i think as long as we can get the staff to actually keep these cattle up there because they do you know you have to travel a long distance to see a handful of cattle you have to you know you all of your labor per head is is bigger than it would be in a low ground system mm-hmm. growth rates are lower so it has to be you know we have to have a, a compensation you have to have a, a support system to encourage cattle to be there and also chasing subsidies is a dangerous thing to do that if we can manipulate our own market you know if we can tell our story and add value to our product whatever happens with the subsidy thing you also get the benefit of the higher value product too moving towards kind of management um, of specific herds robert what what kind of management practices would you be looking to to put in place for a successful upland kind of system yeah, it's a good question, but I think my my answer is going to be um, probably quite woolly on this one because I think every hill farm, so every low ground farm is different, but every upland farm is more different. You know, there's so much variation and there's, there's some, in fact, there's significant parts of Scotland that aren't really fit to carry cattle. You know, they're too wet, too, the forage is too poor, they're too high. Um, so it's you know, it's a challenge to see. We, we we won't come up with a blueprint for how to make money in an upland system. Um, but as a rule of thumb, I suppose the biggest cost of keeping cattle in most systems is the cost of the winter. And actually the winter in a, a hill environment, although it's quite a harsh place to be, if you can breed a cow that's fit for purpose to stand out there in the winter, you can massively reduce costs and make use of low-value forage uh, through the winter and then obviously use the summer period for basically producing beef, producing that calf. Um, so as far as, as I say, as a blueprint, there's not going to be a out-and-out blueprint for how to do it. It's interesting how you know the summer grazing element, winter grazing is cheap, 
and you know efficient from a business point of view perhaps not ideal from an environmental point of view you know we need to be very careful we don't muddy the waters for want of a better word uh, too much there you know we, we need to be environmentally sensitive with whatever we're doing and then management through the summer would be an interesting one as whether in in many cases you might actually see cattle coming down the hill in the summer mm-hmm. uh, onto better better quality pastures uh, grazing them while they're you know meeting peak lactation getting them back in calve and then uh, back up to the hill later on in the year so that's obviously for a spring calving uh, set up and, and i would say most if not all hill cattle will now be spring calving. And I think mm-hmm. that's, I don't think that's likely to change. I think autumn calving would be a higher cost, higher risk um, option for, for hill farmers. So a simple spring calving block would be the the answer, I would say, for um, producing beef in the uplands. It's interesting that you mention winter hill grazing. Um, a little later on in the series, we're going to have a representative from SNH um, discuss muir burning with us. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously with the, the ban coming in and, and because of coronavirus, it, it'll be interesting to get their thoughts on winter grazing as an alternative for uh, for heather management. Yeah. Um, so that, that could very well be something that we discussed down the line. The one thing I hope, but I hope when it comes to policymakers and they've got a clean a clean sheet of paper for developing a new agricultural policy for, for, for Britain and for Scotland and for the uplands. I hope it's not too prescriptive. I hope it's not too a I hope that it allows for flexibility in the management and actually, you know, something that's I don't know how they administer it, but something that's outcome orientated so that if you're actually doing a good job improving your hill environment, it doesn't matter whether it's summer grazing or or winter grazing, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And something that will support that rather than a really broad brush prescriptive, like the the summer cattle grazing uh, element at the moment, there's no flexibility in there or, or minimal flexibility in there. And hopefully going forward, we can get something that a bit more fit for purpose. In terms of um, getting cattle on the hill, Robert, what should people be looking out for with uh, with regards to health planning? Um, yeah, health planning. I would say health is probably the the most important element of any herd. You know, if it's if you're a uh, clear of all the key diseases, iceberg type type diseases. Um, you know, it's a great starter for 10. So health planning uh, for, you know, in hill environments, it's possibly different from intensively grazed low ground stock with lots of neighbours. Um, so there's some things that actually from a health perspective, you'd be better off up the hill. But the key parts, I suppose, would be things like, um, you know, fluke, if it's a particularly wet hill, and a obviously tick as well so there's some areas are very you know ticks a huge problem and and you do hear horror stories of people reintroducing cattle to hills that have a tick problem and it's non-tick acclimatized stock going to the hills and it is it'll be as close to a disaster as you'll get in a livestock context you know it, it can be catastrophic um so the important i suppose the thing health planning is all about a two-way communication with your vet so sit down with your vet and discuss what the potential issue of a, a disease is and what the cost of dealing with it will be. 
and then you, you have your opportunity there to weigh it all up. Um, so things like fluke and tick would be a low-hanging fruit, really. You know, if we don't deal with these issues, you're going to have a massive, massive problem. But then we then come into BVD, Yonis, Lepto, you know, the, the lists as long as your arm of what you can test and vaccinate and deal with. But in a, you know, in a closed, closed haired hill environment, how many of these things are likely to be an issue? Um, so, yeah, it's really health planning is all about a communication with your vet. And um, do you have any strong thoughts on the, the native versus continental uh, argument? Robert, um, I'm conscious that we're talking to um, lots of clients and lots of uh, a range of farmers out there. So yep. um, thoughts, I think, uh, obviously, from a, a hill perspective, many of our native breeds are better placed. But there are, you know, there's breeds like Salaires and, and other continentals that do fit the needs of hill environments pretty well. You know, they're a good functional cows that all, um, all stand the stand the challenges of a hill environment but uh, for me personally if I take my uh, SEC consulting jacket off I would be a, a, a native person I would be a, um, a traditional hairy cow person rather than a, a continental for the hill environment and I think as well there's a huge place for both and in in, even in one system so we see a lot of people now running say ling cows or highland shorthorn crosses uh, and putting them to a Charlie Bull and, and getting a really good low-cost cow to, uh, who's fit to produce a lot of milk and read a good calf, and that calf will be, you know, continental-sired, um, and that example of Charlie can go to a big weight and actually be a part of a very efficient system. You know, it can be a, a very strong calf weaned from a pretty small cow. So the answer to the question, long-winded answer, is both. And the diversity of, you know, the different all the different breeds we've got in Britain are potentially a problem for consistency at the market, you know, for getting a in South America where they've got a handful of breeds they can produce a very consistent product. But the diversity of breeds we've got available is also a huge advantage to us that we can we can put a few a different breeds in the mix, just slip breeds in here and there a, to produce that efficient cow that we're all trying to produce. You mentioned variability there, Robert. I, I have heard it said before that there is as much variation within a breed now as there is between the breeds. How much of a concern should that be for farmers out there? You know, it's a very good point. Variation within breeds is uh, is massive, and and it, 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 the variation is both from in terms of size, in terms of conformation, and also in terms of quality. So there's there's some breeds out there that have been very successful, and there's been possibly a not enough castration done. There's you know there's maybe too many breeding bulls kicking about of a poorer quality. Um, is it an issue? It's a, on an individual basis, I think the it's an opportunity. You know, there's variation there. So you can go in and select bulls um, or breeding heifers for that matter. You can select what you what you want, you know, what fits your needs, um, just as long as it's good enough. And, and we're lucky that we've now got EBVs and, and other tools on our side that we can actually, we can do an awful lot better job in predicting what the ultimate productivity and profitability of that bull is going to be um so yeah it's something to keep in mind but i don't think it's one to 
to dwell on too much. Robert, we, we talked a little about policy earlier on. Do you have any thoughts on the future of Elfast? We, we know that the Scottish government have very recently said that they would like to protect it as much as they can. Um, there are countries within the EU which have moved to these areas of natural constraint. Um, what's your thoughts on Elfast and, and is it something that the industry needs? Yeah, so Elfast is it's a political hot potato as well. You know, it's it's been a very lucrative payment for many people in Scotland. And there's also people who are on challenging farms who happen to fall out with the Elfast boundary. So they're the wrong side of a line on a map. And I, I find it a very... Um, I don't really know what it's for. You know, it's encouraging. It's a, it's a, the, the big picture is it's trying to keep stock in upland areas. And for me, that's brilliant. That is something that we should be encouraging. But does it actually do that would be the question. So I probably don't know enough about Elfast has been on the go for so long um, that it's almost smoke and mirrors when you're trying to work out what somebody's Elfast payment is likely to be or should be. So what's the future for it? I hope it's a lot simpler. I hope it's a lot fairer. Um, and I hope, ultimately, I, I don't care whether it's Elfast, area, areas of natural constraint or whatever they're going to call it. I just hope there's something there that supports and acknowledges the good work that upland and hill farmers are doing while also supporting remote communities and, and island communities as well. So I, I hope as long as there's, there's some a, something positive comes in its place, it really pushes us forward to be a productive and efficient industry. On, on that note, Robert, the beef efficiency scheme is, is coming towards its end now. I, and I think it's fair to say that, that receptions have been, been mixed about it. But do you think it's laid the groundwork for some, some future policy that could be really interesting for the industry? Yeah, I, I think, it, yeah, as you said there, it's, it's, a, it's been a challenging scheme and it was, however well-intentioned, probably shot and missed. You know, we, the intention was to drive efficiency and, and improve performance in, in the Scottish suckler sector. And I think as farmers, we, if we're expecting to be funded for anything while keeping ruminant animals and meeting climate change targets, we're going to have to do a carbon audit. We're going to have to become more efficient. So I hope it's more practical and more uh, the, the farmer will, will get more out of it. For me, there's a lot of benefit there. As I said before, policymakers will think of it, think of it as from, from a climate point of view. If we think about it from a money point of view, it changes opinions pretty quickly and we're actually trying to achieve the same thing. Carbon and pound notes are very, very closely related. So if we can reduce our carbon footprint, we'll actually improve our financial performance too. So yes, I, I think the... I, I, what I don't want to take, the take-home message can't be that the future is going to be the same as the beef efficiency scheme. Um, I, I would expect there'll be elements of that um, carried forward into the future. Um, as far as a direct suckler cow payment as well, so that's been an interesting yep. one. We've always had some headage support, so we've had voluntary coupled support, um, beef calf payments, Scottish suckler beef support scheme payments, and it's all been very welcome and very important to make a suckler cow stand up. And the challenge now is whether that 
that's wanted, you know, whether that, um, if we're trying to reduce methane emissions, trying to reduce our overall country's environmental footprint, do we want to be funding suckler cows directly? And I think the answer to that is yes, we do, but we want to be encouraging efficient suckler cows with businesses that have got mitigation measures in place. So I would expect down the line there will be new schemes, new positive things for the industry that will both ensure there'll be cows left in the hills and driving down that methane problem that we all have to admit ruminant agriculture is not the main cause of climate change across the world. We are in that system. We do have an impact on greenhouse gases and if the direction of travel is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions we have to play our part in that too. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good message. Um, I, I've worked off and on with, with a number of clients like yourself um, who are involved in carbon auditing. And my kind of message to them was always that we're, we're moving into a time where carbon is cash. And if you're admitting something, that that's indicative of a, an inefficiency there. Um, so, And I, I think that a lot of farmers have been very receptive to that kind of message. Um Last year we were we were at AgriScot um, and uh, we were interviewing people on the day. I, I think that climate change has definitely climbed up the political agenda, but also the agricultural agenda. Um, I think we're well placed to 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 meet the challenges coming down the line. And I think as well, most farmers you speak to they do care. You know, we're very yep. exposed to climate change. We're very exposed to changing weather patterns, extremes. We talk about weather literally all the time. So, you know, we I don't know any farmers who don't want to do something positive. And it's really just about engaging and, and hopefully we get schemes or support down the line or even acknowledgement of the good stuff we're doing. But hopefully we get support packages that actually give us a bit of a pat on the back for the good stuff we're doing while also encouraging us to stop doing some of the bad stuff we're doing. What are you seeing within the industry that, that's making you excited or, or optimistic? Is, is there anything that's coming down the line, anything that people should be paying attention to? For the future for me, for, for the red meat sector, is regardless of whether it's processed lab-produced protein or it's hormone-treated American stuff or a feedlot stuff from South America that we're competing with, we can't compete with any of these. You know, the cost, the cost of production for all, all of these alternatives are so much lower than ours. We've got high cost systems and high welfare systems. We're producing some of the best beef in the world. I think as an industry, we need to make sure we are producing the best beef in the world rather than just telling everyone we are. But it's all about storytelling and how we can get Scottish beef to not be a commodity. How do we get it to be a premium product? And we have, to be fair, we've had in recent years, we've had a reasonable premium on Scotch beef, but we're needing to have a significant premium on Scotch beef because it is the best in the world. And for that to be the case, we as farmers and consultants and people in the industry need to make sure that we actually are doing the, are producing the absolute best product in the world. The other part that's very interesting is, and I, I didn't really know I was interested in this until a few months ago, but the... When you look at the arable sector and look at where the, the vast majority of you know food is produced on on high quality, a you know the high quality land across the country, most of these soils or many of these soils have had no stock on them for a long time, and are nearly at crisis point where they can't, they can barely support a crop. Um, 
And the solution to that is livestock. So as a sector, you know, as a um as a group of people, we've got a huge amount to give and huge amount of opportunities for whether it's off wintering stock, selling finishing stock to the east to the east or down south to start improving these uh, these areas. And there's a huge demand in those areas for what they what they're calling regenerative agriculture, which is basically ruminant driven uh, organic systems that are using a uh, herbal lays diverse swords to improve organic matter while also producing some food. So I think where we've had the challenge of out and out, plant good, meat bad, I think we've possibly had that discussion and we've, we need to, we're moving forward into a time where we're going to have a more grown up discussion about why ruminants are so important to everything that we do and everything that we are. So I think there's a huge, a huge amount of things to be positive about, but there are also some some negatives on the horizon too. So the future is going to be, you know, the next few years is going to be a bumpy road economically and uh, environmentally as well. So uh, it's great to be involved and, and hopefully we can come to some positive outcome. Great. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon, Robert. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions about what you've heard today, you can call the Farm Advisory Service Advice Line at 0300 323-0161 or email advice at faz.scott.com